The Lord be with you. And also with you. Bless the Lord who forgives all our sins. God's mercy endures forever. Beloved, as we gather for ordered worship, we do so in memory and in the spirit of one who wrote, unite the pair so long disjoined, knowledge and vital piety, learning and holiness combine, truth and love for all to see. As we gather for ordered worship, we do so with the congregation here in Marsh Chapel, for our radio congregation across New England at WBUR 90.9 FM, and for our internet listenership now and later around the globe at WBUR.org. We welcome your prayerful and material support, your written or emailed responses, your self-selection of forms of service in our midst, and as the spirit moves come Sunday, your presence here in worship. As we gather for ordered worship this Lord's Day, we do so with the particular and especial delight and joy and love of welcoming Marsh Chapel's own Inner Strength Gospel Choir to join in our leadership today under the able leadership of Herbert S. Jones. They returned most recently from a stellar tour in New York City. Welcome to our Inner Strength Gospel Choir. This is the day that the Lord has made. We shall rejoice and be glad in it as we are able May we stand in the praise of God.
May we pray. Almighty God, you know that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. Keep us both outwardly in our bodies and inwardly in our souls, that we may be defended from all adversities which may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts which may assault and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. Some 400 gathered last evening for three hours of musical and textual beauty in the Passion of St. Matthew. We heard in the midst of that choral epiphany these words which we use now to introduce our moment of silent confession for this week in Lent. Look, Jesus has stretched out his hands to embrace us. Come, where? In Jesus' arms, seek redemption, receive mercy, seek it. Where? In Jesus' arms, live, die, rest here you forsaken chicks, stay where? In Jesus' arms, may we pray. fruit 
of the Spirit is patience. Hear good news, if we confess our sins, God who is faithful and just will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them and they were struck down in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples for us so that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not become idolaters as some of them did. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. And do not complain as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened to them to serve as an example and they were written down to instruct us on whom the ends of the ages have come. So if you think you are standing, watch out that you do not fall. No testing has overtaken you that is not common to everyone. God is faithful and he will not let you be tested beyond your strength, but with the testing, he will also provide the way out so that you might be able to endure it. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Beloved, I invite you to read verses from Psalm 63 with the antiphon responsibly. O God, you are my God. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. And in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands and call on your name. My soul is satisfied as with a rich feast, and my mouth praises your joyful lips. I think of you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. invite you to rise as you are able for the singing of the Gloria Patri, the reading of the gospel, and the singing of our hymn. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke, chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Glory to you, O Lord. At that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, that they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. 
or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Do you think that, that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, see here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. Sir, some corda, lift up your hearts. 
amid the furious random hurts in life which fall upon us without respect of person and with, without divine intention in random, chaotic, violent abandon, there remains over time a chance for growth, the possibility of good change, a capacity for faithfulness over time. Learn sympathy, cultivate patience. Give it just a little more time. Give it just a little more time. Give it just a little more time. Let it alone, sir, this year also, till I dig about it and put on manure. And if it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you may cut it down. This Lent, we again, one last time, engage as our theological conversation partner in preaching the great Geneva Protestant reformer John Calvin, 1509-1564. We have found it helpful in this season to link our preaching here at Marsh Chapel and historically Methodist pulpit with voices from the related but distinct reformed tradition, which has been so important over 400 years in New England. The Methodist tradition has emphasized human freedom, the reformed divine freedom. In Lent each year, we have brought the two into some interaction, both harmonious and dissonant. For example, Genesis 1 is a more Anglican or Methodist chapter, if you will, representing the goodness of creation. Chapters 2 and 3 are more Presbyterian or Calvinist, if you will, representing the fallen character of creation known daily to us in sin, death, and the threat of meaninglessness. Both traditions, English and French, make space for both creation and fall. But the emphasis is different. One more garden and the other more serpent. One more creation and the other more fall. The English tradition emphasizes human freedom and the French divine freedom. Both are, if my arithmetic is correct, with us today, even embodied as it happens in our presidential campaign, wherein, if I count correctly, still there is at least one Presbyterian and at least one Methodist in this hour. With Calvin, we encounter the chief resource for others we have engaged in Lent over these same years, voices like those of Jonathan Edwards, Paul of Tarsus, Marilyn Robinson, Jacques Ellul, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a Lutheran cousin, Karl Barth, and Gabriel Vahanian, and themes like atonement and decision. 2016 marks the 10th and last Lent in which from this pulpit in these years we engage the Calvinist tradition. Over the next decade, beginning Lent 2017, the Marsh pulpit, a traditionally Methodist one, will turn left, not right, toward Rome, not Geneva, and we will preach with and learn from the Roman Catholic tradition, so important in the last 200 years in New England, and some of its great divines, including Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, Ignatius of Loyola, Erasmus, Hans Kung, Karl Rahner, and others, one per year. Perhaps you will suggest a name or two or three, not from Geneva, but from Rome for the next decade. Let us listen now to John Calvin interpreting today's gospel, Luke 13, 1 to 9. In brief, we might judge his interpretation, utterly typical of his work on the whole, is both right and wrong, both true and false. First, true, second, false. First, Calvin rightly and directly applies the passage to our self-concern 
wherein we tend to be more self-centered than to be centered selves, Calvin. The chief value of this passage springs from the fact that we suffer from the almost inborn dis-ease of over-strict and severe critics of others while approving of our own sins. Whoever is not shaken by God's hand sleeps soundly in his sins as if God were favorable and propitious to him. Calvin judges rightly that we do not easily sympathize with others' hurt. We sleep. We sleep in our sins, unless somehow roused. This gradual awakening to random hurt is at the very heart of young adulthood and at the very heart of a college education, a real college education. Speaking of education, you hear in these years Ellie Wiesel reflecting on the death camp, saying that God is swinging on a rope in the face of the hung child. You hear Arthur Ashe dying of AIDS, saying that the experience of racism is far worse than his mortal illness. You hear Werner Klemperer bear witness to the slowly tightening noose around his Jewish neck in the Germany of the 1930s. You hear Frank McCourt tell about licking greasy newspaper to survive childhood in Ireland. You hear Agate Nassal tell of the unspeakable horrors inflicted on defenseless women on the Eastern Front in the 1940s. You hear Tim O'Brien remember the things they carried. And these all bear witness to hurt, to hurt, to hurt in history with another list needed for hurricane, earthquake, tornado, and plague nature's own force against innocent life. You are becoming educated. Speaking of emerging adulthood, all of us learn to some degree in these years, in these precious years. In junior high school, one remembers you often look back in admiration at those just older. Being with students week by week takes us back daily back to those other days one remembers. When the, when the senior youth gathered in the church or parsonage in Oneida, New York, we just younger watched and listened. Our retired assistant pastor, he died suddenly at a church dinner a few years later, had a red-haired son, Tommy. He was a favorite for all, happy, prankster, kind. The next fall, the group gathered at Christmas, the spring graduates now home from college for the first time and enjoying the firelight, the tree, the chocolates, and the mistletoe, and we in the junior high watched and listened. That Christmas, Tommy stood out for his red hair, but also for his green uniform. Bright red hair, sharp green privates, army uniform, red and green, headed to Vietnam. He came to mind last week getting this sermon ready in a quiet moment of reading Tim O'Brien's memoir of those years, The Things They Carried. A few years later, the war now over, some of us came home from our first year of college too. The pastor said, he teaching meager sympathy in a violent world, you might want to go over to the Veterans Administration Hospital in Syracuse sometime this break. Tom Malabar is there. 
He lost his legs, you know, in the war. We did not know. We did go. That pastor knew how easy it is. Calvin was right. Absent an act of sympathy, absent a readiness to stop, look, and listen, to look past the tragedy of others' lasting hurt. We sleep unless we are roused. How human it is to look past hurt, someone else's, anyway. Some of life in the years of emerging adulthood, of college life, includes waking up to others' hurt. We are together becoming adults. And so maybe a Lucan word from Ernest Fremont Tittle. Perhaps we too would do well to reject the way of military force and violence, placing reliance instead on efforts to combat hunger, misery, and despair, to lift from anxious peoples the burden and threat of armaments, to abolish racial and religious discrimination, bring industry under the law of service, and to assure to all people everywhere the opportunity of a good life. Second, however, Calvin misinterprets by a wide margin the fuller meaning of the gospel today. His penchant for judgment occludes his vision of grace on a regular basis. Rendering not the stories now, but the parable of the fig tree, Calvin, the sum of it is that many are tolerated for a time who deserve destruction. They do not realize their sin unless they are forced. But listen to the parable, Brother Calvin. Here in Luke, not judgment, but grace is affirmed. Not death, but life. Not authority or force, but growth and change. In Luke, the question of why is set aside for a moment in favor of the challenge to turn around, change, repent. Governmental terrorism in the hands of Pilate and natural accident in the case of a tower in Siloam are simply admitted to, what they, to be what they are, what we know in our experience. Utterly random, utterly random, utterly random in impact. In the parable, the gardener points away from past performance and points toward future potential. Time, time is given. A time of reprieve, of reckoning, of recollection, of restoration. Time heals. There is impending judgment, but there is time for change. This is Luke's own material, chapters 8 to 18. This is Luke's own toddler, budding attempt to deal with what John alone in full adult fashion addressed later, the church's abject disappointment that the expected return of Jesus on the clouds of heaven before this generation passes away, Luke 21-32, has not happened. The first century is ending and Jesus has not returned. In the main, Luke simply continues to hold out hope soon and very soon of the traditional expectation. Not here though, not here in the parable of the fig tree. Here Luke finds, channeling his inner fourth gospel spirit, the possibility that more time, 
may be a good, great thing, may be just the thing, and those of us living now in the 21st century would all say amen, otherwise we, not one of us, would be here. More time has become our time. The Greeks taught us so well. Life is long. Give it just a little more time. Here, Calvin wrongly misses Luke's point and power as much as earlier he caught both. Too much tulip, not enough fig tree here. Especially and perilously, too authoritarian, too inflexible, too inerrant a view of the Holy Scripture. Scripture alone, be careful. Not Scripture in tradition by reason with experience, but Scripture alone. No, says Luke, change over time can come and can become lasting goodness. Friday last week we sat in the Southern California sunshine, the daily environment of our son and daughter-in-law, also known as Paradise, San Diego. Imagine our surprise as we opened the New York Times, the paper of record that morning, in the blue sky, light breeze, warm water, SoCal sun. One of the two letters to the editor was written from the pews of Marsh Chapel, written out of your community, sent to the great city of New York, printed and passed on to the needs of the world around, including those of us reading 3,000 miles away on Pacific Beach. Our friend, advisory board member, retired BU Academy headmaster, Mr. James Berkman, addressed the country in four paragraphs regarding the life, death, and legacy of Antonin Scalia and the matter of interpretation. The letter complemented recent times reporting on Scalia. The letter affirmed the inarguably brilliant aspects of the judge's work and its pervasive influence. The letter recalled a question raised by the author to Judge Scalia in Cleveland years ago and the creative dissent the judge offered in response. He sidestepped the question to deliver a powerful answer on a facet he cared more about, Berkman wrote. Yet the letter in true honoring fashion, honorable fashion, also recognized the limitations and dangers of originalism, quote, if we were to follow Scalia's philosophy only, where would women be today? Where would blacks be today, still treated as second-class citizens and slaves of the founding fathers? Interpretation, that is, of an ancient text, whether the United States Constitution or the Holy Scripture, does indeed require acute appreciation for what the venerable text originally meant, Without that mooring, we are adrift, forever at sea with our own proclivities alone to guide us. But truth was meant to set sail and not merely to lie still in the harbor. The boat, the bark, needs both anchor and sail, both mooring and wind. Interpretation, that is, also and more so, requires of us the courage to exact from the text not only what it meant, but also now, for today, what it means. Our teacher, Father Raymond Brown, said so often and taught repeatedly that the full meaning of a text is not always best given in its mere wooden repetition. 
In fact, the conservative Roman Catholic Father Brown taught the opposite. What most resembles faithfulness to the ancient tradition may look very much like change, growth, something new in this hour today. In life and interpretation, things take time. Time. Let the fig tree have another year. Time. Let me nourish the tree with water and nutrients. Time. Give this scrawny plant some time and see what happens. As the letter to the editor said, it is appropriate to weigh the balance in legacies. One of the real lasting dangers and perils left to us by a certain perspective within the Calvinist tradition, still strong and at large today across parts of this great land, is the dark shadow of biblicism, even of bibliolatry, the mistaken preference for the ancient text over the very Lord to whom the text bears witness. And the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Over 40 years of ministry now and over 40 years of the privilege of teaching the Bible, the Bible which I love with all my heart, which I love with my very life and time and work, the terrible stinging memory stands out of ways the Bible has maimed children, women, men, families, others, when wrongly rendered. Calvin and Luther may have needed all the weight and power of the Bible without its aporiae, nuances, variety, and depth to break from Rome, but tragically, some of that weight, without time, without water or nutrient, and especially without proper, educated, informed, disciplined interpretation, falls like a millstone upon the weak. A case in point, of course, is current Methodist use of the scripture to support bigotry against gay people. When one brings to mind all the children and all the churches and all the pews and all the years who may know at age eight that they are gay and what they have heard from men in black robes, ministers respected and revered even by their parents, causes one to tremble. On one hand, asked how well I know the Bible, I can respond, I love the Bible. The real truth is not how well I know the Bible, but how well the Bible knows me. I love the Bible. On the other hand, when the weight of holy writ and the power of tradition by bad originalist interpretation Six verses from Leviticus, Romans, and Corinthians as opposed to the whole of the New Testament, the whole of the Pauline corpus, the whole of the letter to the Galatians, especially chapter 3, when it falls like a millstone on the necks of children in the minority, and that with the blessing of many who should and do know better, but say nothing. And many of them, educated at Methodist Africa University and riding Methodist dollars into prosperity on that continent today, then I do not love the Bible. Calvin bears some responsibility here, though of course not alone. One of the two great failings we inherit from Calvinism we see just here, the Bible become a millstone around the neck 
The second we shall address March 13th. Amid the furious random hurts in life, which fall upon us without respect of person and without divine intention, in random, chaotic, violent abandon, there remains over time a chance for growth, the possibility of good change, a capacity for faithfulness over time. Give it just a little more time. Let it alone, sir, this year also, till I dig about it and put on nutrients. If it bears fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you may cut it down. Friends, bring sympathy and patience to bear. Can you do that this week? Bring some sympathy and patience to bear. Where in your life with a will a little sympathy and a little patience today bear a whole lot of fruit tomorrow? Paul Shearer, a fine Calvinist, wrote in a much more sympathetic and patient era, I know the things that happen, the loss and the loneliness and the pain, but there is a mark on it now as if someone who knew that way himself because he had traveled it, had gone on before and left his sign, and all of it begins to make a little sense at last, gathered up laughter and tears into the life of God with God's arm around it. Just a little more. I invite you now to enter into a position that makes you feel most prayerful, sitting, standing, or kneeling at the altar rail. As our choir leads us in our call to prayer, lead me, Lord. prayer from the Unitarian Universalist tradition. O spirit of compassion, enter our hearts, we pray. Be with us in the hard hours. Help us to be kind this day. O spirit of unity, help us enter into the pain of our neighbors. Let us walk where they walk, that we might speak a gentle word along the way. O spirit of love, enlarge our sympathies toward all who are troubled. 
Let us be generous of heart that we might forgive and be forgiven. O spirit of thanksgiving, let us be grateful for hands that serve, for those who give and for those who receive. O spirit of life, let us walk together in our weakness, that by treading the path together, we may be made strong. O spirit of God, help us to face the mystery of being. Secure us in the larger patterns we can trust and bless us this holy day. Let us pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. Good morning. Good morning. 
We are so glad that you are worshiping with us at Marsh Chapel this morning, whether that's here in the pews or online or on the radio. We'd love to get to know you a little better this Lent, and we'd love to help you get to know your neighbor a bit better. One way to do that is to fill out the red um, pads at the center of each aisle and then to pass them along and then surreptitiously take a look at the names of your neighbors um, a little later in the service. If you're joining us online or via the radio, please feel free to let us know that you're listening um, by emailing us at chapel at bu.edu. A few announcements this week. Um, three moments of gratitude. First of all, we're so grateful to Dr. Scott Allen Jarrett, the Marsh Chapel Choir and Collegium, and the All Saints Boys Choir from Ashmont um, for their offering of the gospel last evening to 400 souls through St. Matthew's Passion. We'd also like to thank our um, uh, chaplain for um, international students, Ms. Jessica Chica, and all the moments of ministry this past week, including uh, pretzels, poetry, and a retreat for international students yesterday. Our weekly ongoing events are continuing from moments of education to moments of fellowship and food. We invite you to take a look at the bulletin or on our website to keep up with what we're doing here at the chapel. Our children's ministry this morning, which we'll be leaving during the last hymn, um, will actually be baking the bread for communion for our communion service next week. So if you're a child and want to help in this service, please join Miss Jamie Dingus when she leaves during the last hymn. If you know a child um, in the community here, I'd invite you to thank them after the service for um, this service that they're offering to us. And last but certainly not least, I want to offer another moment of gratitude to the Inner Strength Gospel Choir and Herb Jones for their leading us in prayer this morning. As I invite the ushers forward uh, to wait upon us for our tithes and offerings, I invite, us to, uh, I invite you to meditate um, on the Inner Strength Gospel Choir's offering to us and to remember that it is both a gift and a joy to be a giver. Now walk in love as Christ loves us.
O oh, ever-loving God, we offer you these gifts in praise of your blessings. Even as we stray from the path of righteousness, you exemplify your love for us through the teachings of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May these gifts being offered be symbolic of our never-ending gratitude for your compassion and forgiveness. We pray these things in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen. grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the sweet communion of the Holy Spirit be and abide with each one of us now and always. 